Back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. Chris Henry is on assignment, as we say uh, today, but uh, in, in his place, and instead, uh, we have a, a wonderful guest returning to the Apollo 13 Minute microphones, uh, the, the lady with the keys to one of the best buildings in Washington, D.C., <laughs> uh, Dr. Jennifer Lavasa. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for being uh, back with us. Uh, happy to be here, of course. And of course, we had to bring you in because this is the all-important moment, the moment that, that every every kid on a school trip wants to ask about. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's going potty in space. So here, here, we, here we are on a, on a bright, sunny uh, April 13th, uh, day three of the mission. And uh, we get to see a lot of equipment that you get to um, uh, preserve for future generations. Yeah, that's true. And that's what makes my, you know, I like to think that minutes like this, minutes of movies like this really give me a job. This is yeah. the reason I am here. <laughs> uh, it's the reason I work at this museum, at least for the time being. Yes, yeah. we, I mean, we rotate through collections responsibilities from time to time. But um, for the last, oh, I guess the last almost 10 years, uh, I've been curating things like hygiene equipment, and uh, for more than that, I've been curating cameras, and we see a camera in this uh, in this minute as well. So, so lots of these things are familiar uh, in my daily activities, but seeing the movie version sometimes always raises questions like, where, where did that come from, or where did they get that design from, or who gave them, you know, it's just... I know that movie production doesn't always follow reality entirely, and the, you know, the... Uh, sets for these and the um all of the little pieces of equipment that they use may maybe close approximations but not exact so so sometimes in in looking at movies like this uh in the theater or after the fact like now i have to suspend a little of my professional reality to be able to watch them and enjoy them like everybody else I do want to ask about that. That camera that he's holding, I'm assuming, is the video camera or the, the, an attempt at the video camera that was carried on board Apollo 13. Actually, all all the color cameras after Apollo 10. Is, is that... um, that's not entirely true, actually. And one of the, you know, that's one of my one of my beefs with this movie, uh, at least at this particular segment, is that um, one of the uh, sort of it's second, sort of around 28, 29, somewhere in that neighborhood, you see this camera. Uh, this looks to me like the Westinghouse cameras that were used late in the program. Uh, what was being used on Apollo 7 and 8 was a black, R a black and white RCA camera. Uh, right. It's just a little gray box with a, a really simple little uh, handle on it. It had some, you know, interchangeable lenses, but that was the in-cabin camera used so it looks a little bit different than this this looks like a, a version of what you what we have in our collection from apollo 17 so now with these color cameras can we talk a little bit about the technology behind them uh, namely the cbs versus rca color cameras that were being used on earth Oh, boy, you got me on that one. I don't even know the technical stuff. Oh, okay. That. Well, <laughs> if you don't mind, I can, I can explain it. Uh, okay. Sure thing. Um, there, was a, there was a major fight between uh, the two existing color systems that had come out uh, just after World War II. Uh, RCA had an existing uh, black and white system. It used uh, 525 lines 
of, uh, of uh, scanning that would ha appear on a cathode ray tube. And when they went mm -hmm. to color, uh, RCA decided that they would uh, split the, fee uh, the individual lines into uh, red, green, and blue dots. And uh, they would be painted uh, with one-third the resolution of the 525 line uh, black and white. So in hmm. in trading off color for resolution, they went with color. CBS had an entirely different approach. It had a mechanical approach where it would take three different um, uh, filters, red, green, and blue filters. Right, the, the sort of wheel, right? Right, that's right, a wheel that would yeah. spin, and then yep. they would use the same black and white background, but the field would change red, green, blue, red, green, blue, just like looking through a, a pinwheel, say. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, this, even though it was a more complicated system that you had to have these wheels you know synced up uh you had better resolution yeah. and they also used less bandwidth uh the rca system required a, a wide bandwidth to keep all this color information but the the sync pulse of a cbs system meant that you could use a narrower band which was perfect for uh, for transmissions in space now in, on earth uh, rca versus cbs they had a they had a moratorium for six years on using color television when they finally when the FCC finally decided who was going to get it they gave it to RCA because they could use existing black and white systems the, sure. uh, the CBS system wasn't compatible but the funny thing yeah. here in a touch of irony is when they when they went to uh, the moon with uh, the, the the CBS color system that was really a better system it was built yeah. by RCA yep. so uh, kind of went full circle yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, we sometimes don't really think about in terms of the technology of the period and how it kind of manifests in space is the need to, you know, these things are developing in the studio setting and to make it possible to carry some of this kind of equipment in space was a big, you know, it was a pretty big challenge. Um, I recently was able to collect some Viticon tubes from a gentleman who manufactured them. And I'm just fascinated by the sort of, I, I'm always interested in sort of things that are machined, things that are handmade, um, these kinds of technologies that are almost one-off. I mean, these are not the things that we, you know, talk about in the space shuttle era as being sort of off of the store shelves. This is not, you know, these things have to go through, um, there, there's sort of a new development. These are things that are new, period. They're not just picked up from commercial manufacturers all the time and just implemented in space or used in space. And so something like this is really pretty cutting edge for that period as opposed to, the, you know, the still cameras they were using, these are things that they could pick up off the shelf. That technology was advanced at that point, and they were getting great resolution, and that wasn't really a concern. Um, so it's, yeah, this is a sort of new thing for everybody, having to use these kinds of cameras. And I think it's part of the reason that in the beginning, especially on Apollo 7, they were really not keen uh, on, on having to do this work. It was... Um, it's a lot of, to learn the techniques to be able to make this work or not, it's not easy. And to operate the technology is all, it's all learning curve. One more thing to add to the pile that you had to, add, you know, do in space. is just, it's, it's a complication to what they were up there to do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, all you have to do is if you, if you think back on that time, imagine what TV studios were like back then. You saw those gigantic boxy cameras yes. and being able to fit this into something that, you know, fit just from your shoulder to the middle of your waist. That was quite a, quite a big deal that they, that they made something like that. Yeah. And that's the distinction to really make. And I know it seems easy for people to think, oh, well, I see guys, you know, if I, you see footage and I've recently seen some footage of 
um, people who were viewing the Apollo 11 launch and you see people with their little cameras. Those are not television cameras. Those are movie cameras. People are using, you know, you, you go back to one of the most famous movie films ever shot by uh, a non-professional, the Zapruder film of, you know, 1963. That's a, that's a movie camera. That is like film actually running through a camera that is not a broadcast television camera and to be able to miniaturize that and put it into a little box like this that's going to go all the way to the moon and back that was a pretty huge challenge and the story of the Apollo 11 landing and the transmission of those signals um, that's made it into its own movie The Dish so these are stories in and of themselves and, and they're always it's kind of always fun to see how those all those little pieces of technology all those little experiences all came together to make it possible for you the home viewer to watch watch that live on television it's pretty it is one of the most I think amazing things about that time period is the ability to actually bring that message back to someone sitting in their living room um, having watched having eaten dinner or something being able to watch something like that is is pretty amazing yeah it's it, it's stunning and I mean the the Apollo 13 mission especially was, uh, I think there was a lot of concern about uh, video transmissions after uh, we were talking about how, how delicate and handmade these things were. Uh, the loss of the camera on Apollo 12 probably yes. was still singing, uh, singing a bit from uh, from what had just happened after only. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, the Apollo 12 story and having um, broken their camera on the lunar surface has often made me wonder how much not being able to see live television from the moon may have affected the reception of later. I think Apollo 13 is probably the best example of that, where you know things weren't weren't even really put into the broadcast schedules back on Earth. Once you've already done something, is it really all that exciting? Exciting to see somebody do it again and again and again. And that was really the public perception as well. We've already done that, so you know what's the point of um, having this take up space where we could have television shows with sponsors and things like that take that their time. It's not as exciting maybe the second or third time around, um, but to think of it from this perspective where we're sitting today, I think it's, you know, it's incredibly exciting and interesting that, you know, all this effort went into something and um, it was really sort of media folks back on the ground who made decisions that then cascaded into what you will see in just a few minutes from now when things go Things go haywire. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. I mean, the the I mean, we tend to remember the outliers now when you watch uh, the video video playback from from the Apollo era. That this we don't remember much from uh, Apollo thirteen in space, but we do remember the next thing that would come up would be uh, Al Shepard taking out the six iron on the moon and knocking yeah. knocking a golf ball. That that was a memorable video moment. Or uh, Dave Scott with the uh, Falcon feather. Uh, recreating a, a Galileo's check of gravity in a vacuum. So. Yeah, one of the things I've looked at in my own research is sort of our ability to recall these things in part because of the reproducibility of them. And so broadcast television, while recorded back on Earth, isn't very accessible to people in the same way that, say, printing an image taken on the mission on the front cover of Time magazine might be something that somebody could collect and have in their house. So you think about all the memorabilia that comes out of all of this that might involve images. 
you're much more likely, I would imagine, I think it's pretty certain that you're likely to have collectibles that are printed materials that then you could flip back through and say, oh, look at this picture they took, look at that picture they took, than what we would expect today, which is, oh, I can just go to YouTube and call up a video of something that, you know, like the space station operations from yesterday, I could go and do that. You couldn't do that in the 1970s and 80s. That wasn't a capability yeah. of ours to be able to access that information. But you could still go to the library and pick up a magazine, or you could get an index of images from NASA of all of the things that had been captured on those flights. And so our ability to see things and to remember things, I think, has a lot to do with and the sort of perpetuation of those memories has a lot more to do with the, the still images than it does a lot of these video images. But that's, I mean, that's where the richness really is, is not in the still images, but going back and seeing the actual footage filmed of these events is absolutely stunning. Um, there are, I, you know, know of some programs or some projects right now where people are uh, rehabilitating, you know, rescanning all those original films and things like that. And it, just to be able to see it in high resolution at today's quality, essentially, um, it's mind-blowing it's it, it is surreal and that's the word i keep using when i when i think back on having seen this recently is it's surreal to to see it with our technology today but see that that those events through those eyes it's it's like being there it's really it, really intense it really is amazing i was talking with somebody at uh, kennedy space center uh, about three or four years ago and they were working on the project to restore uh, the lunar orbiter pictures which had been uh, originally, they they had transmitted it all as data uh, that were on you know old nine track tapes, the the reel to reel tapes that you'd see in old old movies about computers, uh, and that they had only taken a small sampling of uh, of data to create the images that they showed uh, to the public that went out over Associated Press wires and things like that and had been turned into halftone pictures, but yeah. the the information was still in those di in, in those tapes. And they were redoing these, so they had an original picture of the first Earth rise, not the one on Apollo 8, but the one that Orbiter captured in 1960, I think it was 66. And seeing it again with this incredible resolution that had come down in the original data that had just never been processed correctly, uh, as you said, it's just stunning. You're, you're, it, it's like today. So yeah, it's it's great having uh, having this ability to to take old and make make new. Um, but uh, speaking of recycling and, and things like that, let's, let's, let's move on to the main <laughs> Great transition there. <laughs> yeah. We have our moments. The, uh, th this minute particularly focuses on uh, the human body and uh, what it does in input and output. And we're going to kind of focus on the output section next. Yep, that's understandable. <laughs> um, I, I keep uh, wondering how many takes uh, Tom Hanks had to do for this floating around with... Uh, how is speaking of which? Uh, how is the the equipment that's being used in this? Is it, is it pretty realistic to where what's in the museums now? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, this it, it's actually a really good approximation of of the things that we have in the collection. I would imagine, you know, there's a obviously a long cable. It looks like a cable or a tube that connected the astronauts. I mean, one of the one of the things that's I don't want to say tricky is you know they're, they're going to the bathroom in space is a delicate topic um, how do you it is one of the most understandable crazy questions we get because it's understandable and crazy at the same time that people 
really feel that that's something that they want to try and understand. I, I am always boggled. My mind is boggled when people, you know, dare to ask it in a way because it's, you know, we're not, we don't exactly live in a really sort of open and freewheeling conversational society. So there are still these kind of social norms that we try to observe and going to the bathroom in space has become one that as I have young children who are eight and five years old, the topic of going to the bathroom is, you know, it's something you yes. always have to address. And anybody who's a parent has been down that road. You have to figure it out and making it happen, whether it be pulling over to the side of the road or making a pit stop at a gas station. It's kind of, you know, we all, as we're traveling, know that we have to make plans for that. And making plans for going to the bathroom was not something that happened right off the bat, but like just about everything else in space had a precedent in the, in the military, um, military test pilots, high altitude pilots were having, you know, they were on extended flights and you can't expect anybody to be on those kinds of missions without the ability to relieve themselves. It's just not possible. But of course, in the United States, at least up until the early 1980s, the only people you were worrying about going to the bathroom in space were men. And so that made it a relatively straightforward process and a familiar one to the vast majority of engineers. And so these things are engineered by men for men. Um, it's, I don't want to say a simple thing to, to, to figure out, but the device that he's got here, this sort of yellow, it's obviously quite visible in, in this minute, is this yellow bag. Now, this is the sort of in in the moment, in cabin version of the urine collection device. They were always wearing these, under, and astronauts still have to wear something underneath a spacesuit. So he's just in his, what we call the in-flight coverall garment here, the white the white jumpsuit that he's in. There are lots of little porthole, you know, little holes in this to be able to connect your communications devices. All of your biomedical sensors are coming through that material. And also, you know, so there, there's essentially an outlet to be able to go to the bathroom too and the device they're essentially using and and just to you know lay it all out there is essentially the way these are all constructed and connect to the body is through what is essentially a condom that is cut off at one end and so it's cut off essentially at both ends connecting the man to the device um, and creating a seal and so of course they needed to vent this and that's part of the subject matter of this is they're not keeping all of it you don't want to have to keep liquids and things on board the spacecraft if you don't have to but they were collecting some of this for research purposes and so some of this has to be diverted and collected and, and brought back to earth much of it has to be vented into space and that's sort of the quirky funniness you know character here you know character uh component of this is fred hayes's um sort of characterization of that outlet into space being like a constellation, which in some ways, you know, when you're thinking about all this in the context of the long history, I don't know that it was ever proven. I don't think there was an outlet into space, but this reminds me a lot of what John Glenn described in his mission as fireflies, which was a sort of frozen water that was appearing outside of his window. Kind of the same idea. They're seeing these, you know, sort of frozen, you know, molecules essentially going out into space. And so, um, kind of a yeah quick and dirty on how they were doing it yeah it's all essentially the right equipment it looks you know looks pretty pretty accurate to me and how do they how do they handle uh getting rid of or or storing solid waste on in in the apollo era 
so in the Apollo era, that's a much trickier thing. Um, you start, and we start this story from all the way at the beginning of the process. At the food that astronauts are eating is intended to be low residue, which means it's going to um, force them to do that kind of a thing, do the number two, as infrequently as possible because it is an incredibly complicated and sometimes very dirty, literally dirty operation. So in that case, there is no other way to remove the material than to actually put it in a bag. The fecal collection devices are really inelegant bags that have a round circular kind of uh, adhesive place on the top. Um, so it kind of I don't know, it looks like every any other plastic bag you would have, except it's got this round cir this circle on the top that has adhesive on it. Part of that is, uh, like the food, they want to make sure that they um, contain any bacteria that may, could, you know, that could potentially come from fecal matter. And so there are um, antibacterial agents that are introduced after the fact into the bag. Those bags are then kind of sealed, put in a separate bag. That bag is sealed, and then that is put into a container um, and brought back to Earth. Today, it's not all that different, it, but it, they just have a toilet that essentially is the same kind of thing. It's all packaged up into a container and they need to minimize the air in that. And so sometimes they have to actually like mash it down. This is really indelicate kind of yeah. description <laughs> of what they have to do. There is, uh, from what I know, there is at least one instance, if not more in the more modern era of problems happening with containing. It's called a fecal containment device for a reason. Apollo 10 was a particularly difficult, had a particularly difficult moment. And I remember this just from a few years ago. I've always found it funny when people happen to pick up a, a mission transcript or somebody puts something on social media and it becomes viral. Um, a few years ago, someone apparently just happened to notice in the mission, uh, in a, the Apollo 10 mission transcript that they had commented on the fact that some of the um, feces had gotten loose and oh were flying around the cabin. And so that's one of the difficulties with this kind of a process is the potential side effects of that kind of material, whether it be crumbs from food, fecal matter, or whatever, escaping and getting around. I mean, that can really make you sick for those kinds of things to accidentally bump into. So yeah, it's a really delicate operation, apparently not one that uh, many happen to do. There's also no gravity. And one thing we underestimate is the assistance that gravity provides in such processes in our bodies. The food moves through your digestive system differently in space and much more slowly. But then the process of actually getting it out is much more difficult as well. Um, the toilets on the space station have some suction assistance to try and re replicate that gravity, the effect of gravity. But astronauts in Apollo had a particularly difficult time with that. And so it was important to kind of minimize the amount of time that they needed to do that. I, th I believe there are some stories that say it took some of them up to two hours to be able to have a ball movement. So wow. yeah. um, I, I know there were, really there, unpleasant. There, were, there were some difficulties with digestion itself. I know that in, the, in these later missions, if you look at the, the crew manifest for what they were sending up, they send a lot of anti-gas, gas X kind of. Uh, yes. methicone and things because yep. if if you're you know even though we rely on peristalsis to move things through the digestive system the gases don't come up to the top anymore so you're kind right. of you're kind of carbonated the whole way 
through. It's true, and it's one of the reasons that carbonation doesn't really work in the same. I'm here. I'm sitting drinking a, a, a diet beverage, and uh, there's carbonation. And those bubbles rise to the top. Well, the bubbles don't go anywhere in space, and so the effect is essentially kind of voided out. And the same happens inside your body, which is also one of the reasons that astronauts say that they don't really get that hungry in space. A lot of them come back having lost weight because the food, if you can imagine, as you're swallowing. Though your muscles and your throat are moving the food down into your stomach, the there is no gravity to kind of then move that, you know, to help assist move that down to the next stage. And it kind of floats in your stomach. So your stomach will actually end up feeling more full with less food just because of the way the sort of body is trained to sense these things. And it just takes a lot. To, so they kind of have to just know that they have to eat so much food and, and eat that even if it doesn't really feel like they want to eat that food. It's kind of your body's kind of tricking you and your mind is tricking you into believing you're full when you're really not. You haven't really eaten a whole lot of food. And so the same is true on the other end. And the gas is a big issue. They need to be able to have some assistance in kind of moving those kinds of things through the body that normally flow through quite naturally. Um, thanks to gravity. So I, rem I remember that Sir uh, Isaac Newton is our friend here. We really need to appreciate him more. <laughs> <laughs> I remember John Young had a particularly uh, uh, picturesque uh, discussion of, of how gravity, once he had landed on the moon, was affecting uh, all the stuff that he had eaten while in zero gravity. And uh, he, he just stayed away. He really was staying away from citrus drinks and any kind of food because there was so much gas throughout yeah. his system. And uh, he just, uh, I, I think they had a call, they called up for mission control to ask him to stop talking about it on a, on a live mic. Yeah, that's, then that's a particularly complicated part of being a, just an average human being in space. I mean, these guys are trained for this. They had gone through all kinds of simulator training and um, zero G flights in some cases. And so these, these things are, but it's the duration of them. It is the effects over the course of time, the buildup. We all know when one thing goes wrong in your body, then, then this doesn't feel good. And then that doesn't feel good. And so if you can't relieve one issue, then it tends to have a cascade effect. And that's of course going to be true in space too, if you can't resolve these things. And so the medical kits that we have alone are really, I think, great examples of the variety variety of things that needed to be, that astronauts and the people on the ground, the flight surgeons needed to be ready for, all the scenarios. We recently, uh, the museum was preparing one of them for the tour of the Apollo 11 command module, and we realized that though it may not be active anymore, that one of the things the astronauts were carrying to the moon were some pretty serious narcotics because they needed to be ready for just about any scenario. And so there are some like class three drugs on these things that we really can't ship, even though it's been 50 years since they, you know, who knows that they're viable after that amount of time, but we weren't willing to find out. And so yeah. it, you have to, you have to be ready for pretty much any medical scenario you can think of. It must be, I, I keep thinking about uh, in the restoration or renovation process of, of, of storing these relics and stuff. Do you, do you do things like launder the clothes or anything? Or, I mean, how do you, I, like, I'm, I'm looking at his coveralls and stuff. I keep thinking. They're really pretty, and, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really nice. It's very, very, very uh, delicately used. And I, I just keep thinking when you're, you know, you've been in a suit for two weeks and it's sweaty and smelly and you don't want to lose that. But how do you preserve, 
how do you preserve the cloth without having you know the decay of armpit sweat and all that kind of stuff great question that's something that Lovell and Jim Lovell in particular there's a great example of the sort of extremes that that is go that goes through from his uh, Gemini 7 flight where he and Borman were in those spacesuits for the entirety of their mission can you imagine um, opening couldn't... the door <laughs> yeah well they that's one of the comments that had come from that mission is just how absolutely horrid that smell became in there because they couldn't bathe yeah. at least by the time of Apollo they're able to take their spacesuits off, put them somewhere else. They could ch actually change clothes. These were largely these these in-flight coverall garments. There were there was one set, so they were in some ways wearing just that on the outside. There's other uh, they're wearing something underneath that too. So that's not the only thing they have on, thankfully. So there's a little bit uh, more of a clothing, you know opportunity. So we do not as a policy launder anything. Um, we There's plenty of material in the collection that has touched human skin. There's a full expectation that skin, hair, things like that, just like you would find on your clothes after a long day of work, that material is going to remain on there. And if it is having a negative effect, we, our conservation staff has ways of cleaning it. The one thing that's true in this scenario that we have to take into account is that in some instances, it's likely that these things were cleaned by NASA before we even got them. So oh, okay. would it then have, would any of these things potentially have like Neil Armstrong's hair on them? I don't really know the answer to that. It's more likely we'd find somebody else's hair on it who'd handled <laughs> it more recently. And so it's always entirely possible. I, I don't know of any particular instances when we have had any kind of body fluid, sweat, any of that kind of material that's kind of lingered on the material after the fact and caused any damage. But one of the things that's true at the museum is that we have to be particularly careful about how we handle the objects. And in, in most instances, instances, you know, these items were only used for say a few days to a couple of weeks. And so it ends up being about the handling that's happened since that point that becomes the real problem. And so with spacesuits and space clothing and w whatever it might be, even, you know, almost any of these pieces of small personal equipment you see in this particular minute or any of the minutes in the movie, it's about how we've handled it in the last 50 years, almost since this, that we really have to kind of be mindful of. So when you see museum curators or you see museum staff, we're wearing gloves to protect it from the oils on our hands, the fingerprints we could leave behind. We don't touch things that are metal. The oils could be really corrosive. Um, you never know what bacteria or germs might do to any of these kinds of things as well. So we, we try to be, you know, particularly careful in the handling. When, uh, when you're actually, when you're actually uh, working on these things, a lot of times it's ephemera. It's not meant to, it's not meant to last. So, uh, that's true of almost yeah, all of these things. And I, I would assume that right now, you know, things that are happening right now in space on the on the ISS and, and you know, people going back and forth. Do you have some? You must have some kind of a liaison right now with NASA and um, in talking with and SpaceX and people like that, in telling them we need we would like to have the following things saved if you could, and if you just put it in a box and don't touch it. Do you, I mean, does that come up a lot? 
That's, yeah, it does. I mean, that's something that we're always on the lookout for. The museum is getting ready to do a big renovation project. I probably mentioned one of the last times I was on. Uh, it's going to be a seven-year project. We're going to redo all of our exhibitions. And so, you know, we know people want to know about what's happening today. And we want to tell you those stories. But we need artifacts to be able to tell them. And that's our number one point when we talk to NASA, SpaceX, Blue Origins, any of the companies that are active right now is we want your stuff. We literally want to be able to hold that in the collection, partly because we are the repository for the nation's space history, aviation history. We need to be able to tell those stories, not just today and tomorrow and next year, but three or 400 years from now, we hope the Smithsonian is still doing this job. Um, the Smithsonian's already over 170 years old, so we want we know that there's some longevity here. We, we want to be able to keep going with this for a long time to come, and we have the expertise here to be able to preserve that stuff for the long run, but getting people to understand their own history is a real challenge. The great thing is we've had a relationship with NASA since the 1960s, so we have an agreement in place that allows that NASA material to come here, but today so many people have changed positions. People have retired. Getting in with with the people who are doing it right now at NASA is the real challenge. There's just, you know, a, a whole new set of people doing this work. And so that's part of the process that many of us in the space history department are doing right now is reconnecting or connecting just period with NASA to make sure that they know. Um, and that goes all the way up to the very top of the NASA, all the way to the NASA administrator. They need to know what it is we want. We, do we want a spacesuit? Do we want a camera? Do we want uh, food trays? Do we want food? Do we, you know, what are the things that are going to help us tell that story? We have to be able to ones to tell them this is the story and you know, we've consistently told these kinds of stories in the past and we want to continue that so we know what categories of items we want we just have to have the right person on the other end of that conversation and so we're constantly working as you were that. saying that uh, the smithsonian is now in its 170th year you must have uh, almost an, 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 an internal affairs bureau that's that's preserving your own history and especially since you're doing a, a renovation of uh, the National Air and Space Museum, saving pieces of the 1976 version of uh, the National Air and <laughs> Space Museum must be uh, somebody's job, I would think. Uh, yeah, it's kind of all of our job. I think uh, this is technically the 172nd year of the Smithsonian, but we have just passed, yeah, the 1976 opening of this building. So we are now 42 years old here. Yes, that is part of it. We are in part of the transformation of this building, the re what we're calling revitalization of the building itself, in part has challenged us to think about our own history. And one of the big pieces of the, you know, there's two big parts of that story in my world. One is the, the stone that's on the exterior of the building needs to be replaced and so how can we preserve part of that as our story um, some of that was uh, sent to sent to a really interesting destination not all that long ago and returned to us here on earth so we have some really special pieces of the museum that we can kind of put into kind of our own historical records of the building the other part of that story that I find really interesting is the Zeiss projector that we have in our uh, planetarium, which we don't really use anymore, but is a real signature piece to think about how museums operate, how planetariums operate. And so we've been going through an effort to try to find a way to save that because otherwise we're gonna, we, we've are gonna we already got a digital projection system in there and that can just be the only thing in there. That Zeiss projector is the way a lot of people saw planetarium shows here for many decades. And so, and there aren't many of them around anymore. And so we're trying to find, you know, we've I think we've all agreed that we're gonna find a place to store that and keep it as really a 
piece of the museum oh, for history. sure yeah i think it's it's iconic uh i can remember being a being a kid and going there and, see, and seeing so many sky shows uh yeah, the loss of that would be tragic. So yes, please <laughs> wrap it carefully. Yeah. So yeah, in fact, we we at one point realized that we um, what we should have probably done was save the original IMAX projectors, and that didn't happen. That was many many moons ago. That those have been swapped out for brand new ones. But um, and I think we've gone through like two renovations of that theater since it, the museum opened, and so that wasn't in the cards. But that's something that we, we've talked about, and we realized, you know, we need to be thinking more seriously about that because it's part of our job not only to tell the story of you know the things that we study, but also ourselves because it's kind of an American yeah, institution. If, if you have any of those uh, the original tapes of the the fellow, I don't know who the announcer was for. Uh... But I, I can remember so many days uh, being in the theater and hearing that sepulchral voice saying, welcome to the Samuel P. Langley Theater. And it just, it, you felt <laughs> like, oh, this is going to be a good show. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, and that's another big challenge the museum and all museums have is really the sort of effort to maintain those records in the digital age. And so how are we storing our records is a big challenge for us. How are we um, sharing those with people? And so keeping um, a digital asset management system is a big point. You know, these are all the like boring behind the scenes museum things. But someday, you know, there's going to be somebody that's going to want to come study all that material and, and kind of um, oral histories. And thankfully, we have a really fantastic archive here at the museum that maintains, um, and there is a Smithsonian, overall Smithsonian archive that maintains the records of each of the units, each of the museums themselves. And so while our archive may focus on sort of aviation history or space history, there is an, there is somebody actively looking at how are we preserving our own work and what we're doing. Um, it's kind of, you know, surreal. Again, I use that word, but it's surreal to think of one's everyday job being a part of history itself. And so, yeah, it makes me worry about, you know, I'm hoping in the back of my head that I'm, I'm creating digital records that somebody may want to look at at some point yes, <laughs> it's kind no of typos, hard to believe yeah. but <laughs> yeah i know it makes you really like uh, you know every once in a while you have that little thought in the back of your head of somebody may want to see this someday i need to send you want to be you want to be nice in your emails yeah, and... well, you have to, yeah you want to <laughs> just keep the somebody in the 22nd century is going to be uh, pouring over brochure you know the trifold brochures and saying who wrote right, this right uh, yeah who wrote this garbage <laughs> yeah like knowing that you know and that's funny because in the moment of creating those kinds of materials you you just don't want the people who you're representing to hate it. So I, I did an exhibit that involved spacewalking and I gave a tour to Gene Cernan and I wanted him to like be pleased with the product. But what I didn't think at the time and only kind of now coming to realize is that somebody 200 years from now could look back on the script that I, script that I wrote for that and go, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> like, why would she say that? That's ridiculous. We all know now because of this other thing that that wasn't true or, you know, it's just this idea that as time progresses, we're able to gather information in different ways that any of this could just all of my work could just be like oh, well it's not irrelevant maybe but somebody will uh, this is part of the imposter syndrome problem you always <laughs> think, you think like how did I get here I don't belong here but yeah it's it's it is a little surreal and overwhelming it's, sometimes uh, you, your your work is somebody else's legacy later on so you know that's uh you just keep that <laughs> keep that in mind I I I uh, I think you have you have one of the most marvelous jobs in the world, and uh, I'm glad I'm well, glad you. you appreciate where you're at. That's that's the thing. It's just I, it's for it, sure. Never take yeah, it for granted. Yeah. It's, it's nice knowing that you you know you jump out of bed in the morning and go I'm going to work at the Air and Space Museum. That would that's just that, yeah. that's just a great a great start to your day. 
Yeah, it is. And I, um, even though my office has moved in re in recent months, I, uh, the times that I get to walk over to the National Mall building and walk through those doors and see the, you know, sort of icons of our, our aviation and space history, it's a, it's a, rarely is it a day, is there a time I do that when I don't still have that little moment of, wow, this is a really amazing thing to get to do and to be doing it every day is a real privilege. And so hopefully I'm, you know, carrying it out in a way that people can be proud of. And I certainly am proud of it too. So um, the great part of it is that I get to share with other people. It's one of the things that I think makes this job really exciting and fun for me is the fact that I'm not just doing, I'm not doing any of it for myself, really. I'm doing it for somebody else. You know, somebody's paying, the taxpayers pay for this place to stay open. They pay for me to have a job and I owe it to everybody to, to do it uh, a lot of care, really, because it's going to last well beyond my days. <laughs> well, you're on, you're on the world's longest uh, class trip. Think of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I can imagine myself on an eighth grade class trip anytime. Having given tours recently to some mutual friends of ours, uh, I, I can appreciate the awe and wonder aspect of coming to this place in ways that's always one of the best parts of my 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 day is if I get to give a tour to somebody that's never been here before just getting them to see getting to watch them react to the things that I see every day it kind of puts it in a new perspective and you really get to um to really enjoy it and um appreciate what you get to do that's every fantastic day. wow well Jennifer thanks again for uh, for helping us out here to learn the ins and outs of all well, ins and outs of <laughs> of the astronauts um <laughs> And we'll, we'll probably have you on uh, again more for some of the more arcane uh, questions, but uh, but it, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And I know Chris is probably kicking himself miss, missing you being on this up, but but he'll be he'll be around next time you're on. Uh, I'm sure. I I certainly hope so. I miss Chris, and uh, I'm I'm as you know I'm always happy to to chime in whenever I'm useful. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll see you again. Uh, for folks uh, listen, listen look, looking for previous episodes, uh, to, uh, scroll back on our main site, uh, Apollo13minute.com, Apollo13minute.com. If you go back to episode nine, uh, that's where Jennifer first joined us uh, to chat about things, and you can uh, get some more insights on uh, on how museums work. If you'd like to uh, reach out to us, we're always available on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Apollo13minute. You can find us on uh, Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. Uh, if you would like to get this and other uh, episodes delivered to you hot and fresh every morning, go to iTunes or Google Play, search for Apollo 13 Minute, hit subscribe, and it'll come right into whatever you're listening on as you're running on the treadmill or driving to work in the morning. Uh, we'll be happy to entertain you and inform you uh, in the future. So here we are, 45 minutes into the show. Tune in tomorrow when we talk to about, oh, a girl who's really upset about her band coming apart. <laughs> We'll, we'll see you all here tomorrow. Looks like we're coming up on loss of signal in about 30 seconds, so we will see you here next time on the Apollo 13 Minutes.